I do think it's actually, you, you, you ought to feel uh, okay to acknowledge the fact of like, how in the world are you going to pull a sermon out of that text? <laughs> a genealogy, for goodness sakes? How in the world? Well, I think one of the reasons why uh, we're so baffled by the fact that these were included in the scriptures, because we don't really realize how important these genealogies were to Jewish people. Um, and as a matter of fact, for the sake of reference this morning, keep open uh, a similar genealogy that's in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to be referring to that as well, where Matthew has another one, but similar there. But for a Jewish person, you had banked a lot of emotional and social energy into the fact of your racial identity. And a genealogy was the way in which you proved that identity. It also ended up being the way in which you understood who was going to be the priest in the temple, because the temple was the very center of all of their religious life. Finally, the genealogies let you know who was actually in the line of King David, which was a very important deal because you wanted to know whether the person that was going to come and rescue your people was actually in the line of David. God had made a promise to David so many years ago that one of his sons would sit on the throne of Israel. So I was trying to find sort of a an analogy, some sort of comparison to the things that we do and the way that we think. And it occurred to me that a a genealogy to a Jewish person was kind of like what a DNA test is to us, okay? A DNA test is a thing that helps you prove that you are who you say you are. Um, There was a story I was reading a number of months ago about a man in Idaho who, though he was adopted, had always wondered about who his birth parents were, and any opportunity he had had before to discover that uh, had met with failure until one day he picked up one of those DNA tests that are so popular among genealogy sites these days. Well, he posted his results and didn't really hear anything for a month or two until afterwards there was a woman in Arizona uh, who actually did the same DNA test, and suddenly there was a match that showed up that said that this person, you know, very well could be a near cousin of yours. So they decided to sort of start to communicate. Well, as they were sort of sharing stories back and forth, the man ended up sharing a small little detail that he remembered from his shadowy childhood, and the woman all of a sudden erupted because it triggered a memory in her own mind, and she said, I'm your sister. And it turns out that she was. And what the man said in the article was, he said, for the first time, I realized that I was connected. I wasn't wasn't disassociated from my life. You ever felt that way? Well, you know, we've been looking at this semester at what one might find to be compelling about Jesus of Nazareth. And today we find that he's compelling and impressive because of his pedigree but actually not how you likely think that he's impressive. I think Jesus is going to surprise you with the people that he gets mentioned there, but when we understand Jesus' heritage, his lineage, his genealogy, you'll find that there's a huge hook into leading you into being connected to him. Let's see if we can dive into this. I want to look at three sort of ideas that tell us about Jesus' history. Number one, that Jesus had a real history... Number two, that he had a gracious history. And number three, that he had a crucial history. Okay? A real, a gracious, and a crucial history. Let's dive into this. You know, I've been talking about how important it is that the Gospels are a story, 
But you know, most good stories begin with the line, once upon a time. But in these stories, Jesus' stories always begin with his lineage. Why? Well, I think the reason why is because Luke wants us to know and to remember that the Jesus we are talking about is rooted in real history, actual space and time. Jesus was not a legend in the way in which we talk about legends. He was a historical figure with a real family. And again, this is where you begin to notice the importance of comparing Matthew's genealogy with Luke's genealogy because if you're not familiar with it, the two genealogies actually differ. There are different names that are listed in both of them. And of course, theological skeptics like to celebrate at that moment and sort of import their own biases on the text and say, ha-ha, you see the Bible contradicts itself less. Why do you build yourself on a, your life on a document that's obviously clearly contradicts itself? Well, <laughs> not, to be, not to burst a bubble by any stretch, but I promise you that we've noticed this fact. Um, uh, we saw it, uh, and we realize that best theologians have said and instructed us that Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, while he traces Luke traces Jesus' genealogy through his mother, hence the different people that extend back up through their family tree. What I find fascinating, though, that will help you understand why they did what they did, is how Matthew and Luke's genealogy end, where they terminate. Because in Matthew's gospel, he finishes by saying that Jesus was the child of Abraham. Now, why would he do that? Well, because Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And in that context, they would want to know that this person that you all thought was the Messiah was actually Jewish. So that's why he ends there. He had proved his case once he gets to Abraham. However, Luke, on the other hand, stops with Adam, the son of God. Now, why did he do that? Well, I think for at least a couple of reasons. The first one is, is because Luke's genealogy is sort of sandwiched between two stories. The first one's the one that we did last week, was Jesus' baptism. The next one that we're going to look at next week is his temptation in the wilderness by Satan himself. But what you'll discover in both of those stories around the genealogy is that the thing in question is whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God. Next week we're going to hear uh, 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 um, Satan look at Jesus and say, if you are the Son of God... And turn these stones to bread. That's the thing in question. And it's almost as if Luke wants it to be ringing in your ears before you get to Jesus' temptation, the fact that Jesus had Adam as one of his ancestry. Now, why would he do that? Hold that thought. Because that's my last point. We're not there to that yet, though. The second reason, though, I think that, that Luke sandwiches this the way in which he does is because he suggests people of royalty in it. Both David and Zerubbabel make it into Luke's list, and that's important because that would have established for a Jewish person that Jesus was of the royal line. He had the right to claim the kingship that he was going to demonstrate. Now look, so therefore you get these these genealogies that are trying to say Jesus was actually this real person with a family history that was there. He was true in historical fact. Now why would that be important before I go into the second point? Well, simply this. And I heard a number of years ago Tim Keller say this in this particular way, and I've never forgotten about it. And that is simply this, that the gospel 
is good news. It's not just good advice. And there's two different things. You see, most religions, when you peel back the layers, are sort of built on teachings and principles that would be true even if their religious leaders, or even if their religious leaders had never existed. Does that make sense? Like, in other words, the religious founder was just the one who delivered the principles and talked about the teachings. For instance, if you go to Buddhism, um, Buddhism doesn't depend on the Buddha being an actual person. You know, the principles Buddhists believe undergird the universe. The Buddha was just the mouthpiece of it all. The same, I would say, is true for Islam. You know, for a Muslim, the pattern of how Allah wants you to live is self-evident whether or not Muhammad was a real person or not. Now, to be fair, a Muslim person would like to demonstrate very strongly that Muhammad was an actual person. I get that. But my point is, is that the principles and the teachings of Islam don't depend on whether or not Muhammad was a real person. Does that make sense? This is a big one. And so what that means then is that Christianity is different because what we don't need is some other person standing up and giving people advice on how they should live their lives. C.S. Lewis, back in the 1950s, when he wrote um, uh, Mere Christianity, stumbled across this point. I think it's fascinating. He says, look, there has been no end. There has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more would have made no difference. We've never followed the advice of the great teachers. Why would we be likely to begin now? Why would we be more likely to follow Christ than the others? Because he's the best moral teacher? Well, that makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. You love Lewis's pessimistic view of human nature. He says, if we can't take the elementary lessons, is it likely that we're going to take the more advanced ones? Now listen to this. He says, if Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. What's he saying? He's saying that Christianity comes to you most importantly, with something that has happened. Yes, Jesus taught all kinds of things, all kinds of, frankly, eye-popping things that we're going to talk about as the sort of year stretches on. But the difference is what he did. It's what he did that you have to grapple with, and that's what's crucial. And look, this doesn't, we need to park on this for just a second. Christianity is not fundamentally a new and better path to a good morality. Christianity is not a more sophisticated self-improvement system. Nor is Christianity an attempt for you to sort of find a path to your best life now. That's not what Christianity is. Rather, get this, Christianity is a set of propositions. It's a story. It is an account of something astounding, that if it's true, if it really happened, means that you cannot live your life the way in which you have. This is a really big deal. This is a really big deal. Because so often we don't understand the important order of Christianity. Do you know the order of Christianity has to be? Which is it? Do you live a good life as you possibly can by following moral teachings so that you can be in good with your founder? Or is it that the founder has already done something in human history to establish your salvation, and in the light of that, we cannot lead the life we used to? 
Because the order is everything. Because if you mix those things up, it's not that you sort of got a less than good Christianity. It means that you didn't understand Christianity's first principle. And what sort of sort of makes me shudder is just how subtle this can be. And how easy it is to sit sort of on Sunday mornings and think to yourself, you know, I've really just kind of gotten away from God. I need to go back to church. Well, that may be true. You may need to be back at church. But if you're here only so that you can work a little bit harder at your own self-renovation, I think you've come to the wrong place. Because that's not what this Bible teaches. I think actually this, this is worth pushing a little further. The important thing about the gospel is what has happened that must be believed and received like a gift. And so therefore, you are not a Christian this morning if you're just trying to emulate the moral teachings of Jesus. That bears pausing to let that settle in. Because even if you keep them better than the vast majority of people on the earth, you are not a Christian until you have embraced by faith what an actual Jesus did in human history. Why? Because the gospel's not advice. It's a story. It's an account that must be believed and embraced. That's different. So first of all, Jesus had a real history. Second of all, he had a gracious history. What do I mean by a gracious history? Well, Matthew and Luke both, but especially Matthew, they have some characters in the genealogy that you just wouldn't include if you were writing someone's resume. You know, that's kind of what a genealogy was. A genealogy was your resume that you put your best foot forward. Like, ah, huh, see, here's, a, here's my people, right? And you judge them by who your people are. Well, in Jesus' list, you're going to come up with a couple weird features. Let me give you two of them. Number one, there are women in Matthew's genealogy. Now, that may not sound weird to you, but in Jesus' day... A woman was a second-class citizen. As a matter of fact, it's a matter of historical record that a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. Uh, And so therefore, you did not appeal to the witness of women to sort of establish the truthfulness of your case. That would have been contrary to your purposes. If a Jewish male had been reading this in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago, it would have been a little eyebrow-raising to be like, oh, well... Some women in this list, I see. And if that one didn't get you, the women that he lists will. That's my second thing about this list. It's not just any women. These are women with some difficult past. First of all, you got Tamar in that list. Frankly, Tamar's story is a, a little too PG-13 for me to, mix, to mention here on Sunday morning, right? But you also have Rahab. I mean, Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho before she was rescued by the, German, by the Jewish army before its destruction. Uh, then you've got Ruth in the list, in Matthew's list. Ruth was a Moabite woman. She wasn't a purebred. And then you find out that there's the whole David and Bathsheba thing that gets mentioned. <laughs> Not only that, but Bathsheba's murdered husband Uriah is in the list, as if anybody wanted to bring up that whole episode again. But the point is this. <laughs> Actually, this, this occurs to me. Uh, Do you remember when you were dating your your now spouse or whatever, and you had that date? And that date was when you were going to go and meet your spouse's extended family, and you kind of had to get coached on the way to the house. You know what I'm talking about? Your your person with you was kind of like, okay, look. Within eight minutes of us getting there, my weird Uncle Fred 
is going to embarrass me. Just own it. It's going to happen. And don't even get me started on my crazy Aunt Frida if she's not taking her pills, okay? It's going to get bad from here on out. Why do we do that? Because someone is coming to see my people, and they're a little bit weirded out by it, right? We hide those things, and yet Matthew goes and lists them all. Why? You want to know why? Because from the very beginning, Jesus associates with outcasts. From the very beginning, Jesus begins to establish his heritage, his lineage, with the socially marginalized, the people that were on the fringes of normal, modern, well-to-do society. And from that time on, Jesus' followers always did that. In the same list, you have King David and a prostitute. Why? Because in Christ, the two of those individuals stand on the same platform. Full stop. You know, famine and war had devastated the uh, Roman city of Caesarea by the early 4th century. So that when the plague spread throughout that region, uh, the Roman citizens all headed for the suburbs, retreated from the city and left. But at least one group stayed behind to take care of the sick. And you know who that was? That was the Christians. An early church historian, Eusebius, records in his book, The Church History, this little uh, uh, paragraph here. He says, All day long, some of the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. The Christians showed up. When they looked and they saw the sad And the destitute, the refugee, they moved towards that group of people. And you know what happened? The world took notice. A couple decades later, the pagan emperor Julian, who Christians ended up calling Julian the Apostate, no friend to Christianity, by the way, actually showed that it was the Christians' compassion that led to the Christian, from Christian Christianity being a small little, you know, Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern sect to becoming a world dominating force writing to one of his own pagan priests. This is what Julian says. He says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our own priests, then I think the impious Galileans, Christians, observed this fact and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everybody sees that our people lack aid from us, he wrote to one of his own pagan priests. What's he saying? There was an instinct in the earliest of Christians to have their eyes trained upon human suffering. And they not only took care of their own, but other people. And it won them cultural influence. Do you want that? Do you want for Christianity to to have more influence in society? Well, you know what? It didn't happen in the fourth century because they attempted to elect a Christian emperor. It did not happen in the 4th century because of extensive and repeated boycotts of multinational corporations running the Roman Empire. It did not happen because they spent all their time advocating for policy changes to their local Roman representative. No. They took care of the outcasts of society. Now, where did they get that notion? You ready? From a genealogy. Because I saw what God was doing from the very beginning. And Jesus had a real history, but he had a gracious history. 
that train God's, God's people's eyes to the poor. Thirdly and finally, Jesus had a crucial history. This one's a big one. Because you've got to follow the logic here. Because Luke finishes his genealogy with the fact that Jesus was in the line okay, of Adam, the first human, he says something interesting about how Jesus was both similar and yet different from us. How so? Look at how he's similar. Jesus is related to all mankind through Adam. Jesus' story, therefore, is humanity's story. Jesus is like us. He has come down into the pit with us. And so, therefore, the message of his baptism and even his lineage is one of him being connected to us. However, he's also quite different, is he not? It's almost as if Luke is emphasizing Adam's sense of being a son of God in order to say Adam was the one who had failed, but where Adam would fail, Jesus would succeed. In other words, we're all here because of a single act of Adam's disobedience. Okay, But Jesus is here by a single act of ascending up into obedience. There is a new Adam that's come along that will come and offer the gospel to all fallen humanity. It is only as Jesus is both God and man that He can be the only hope of salvation. There is no other way. And here's what this means. It means that if Jesus was representing all mankind and never let go of the rope that connected Him to His humanity, but also to His divinity... It means that you and I can have his resume. You and I can have the final repair of our own broken histories. I heard an illustration a number of years ago that was um, directed at college students, and so I'm going to keep it that way, but you'll, you'll figure it out as we go along. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you are, as a college student, in possession of a secret book. The book contained everything you ever did and everything you ever said. In the margins of the book, there was even commentary on what you were thinking while you did and said those things. Needless to say, the book was something that you tried very hard to know where it was at all times. There was nothing that you guarded more in your life. However, one day upon arrival back at your dormitory, you look back through your backpack and the book is not there. You quickly escalate through six or seven stages of panic before you suddenly realize that you left the book in the grove on one of those little picnic tables where you were studying right there in front of Farley Hall or wherever. And so you become the world's fastest sprinter, going across campus to make it. But as you come up over the hill beside the Union and look over there to the picnic table, you suddenly see about a hundred people gathered around the picnic table, listening to the reading of your book. Now pause for a moment. Can you imagine the horror, the fear, the abject shame that would wash over you in that moment? Because don't you see, there is a universal problem with our personal histories. Our histories, as it were, are those things that rise up even when we're feeling the best about ourselves. Our experiences in our past know how to come up and be like, you ain't all that. Don't you know where you've been? I know your people. It discourages us. Our past, it seems, are so hard to get healed. I had a young lady in my office a number of years ago, 15 some odd years ago, 
who, um, in, even before she began to talk about the hurt that was in her life, you could just tell that there was a gash across her childhood. Well, you see, when she was eight and nine years old, she was repeatedly sexually abused by a close family member. Let that sink in for a second. That's second and third grade. She was experiencing the fear and the shock and the pain and the almost indescribably mind-numbing confusion that would come from that kind of assault from an older male. Needless to say, the gash as she went on through her childhood grew to the point where she said, she used this language, she said, it's almost as if that thing in my past has become the only interesting thing about me. That everything that has occurred to me since that time is about that. You know what she means? She had inadvertently almost build her, built her life around that pain and around that hurt. But I was there for the moment when a little shaft of light went piercing in the middle of that story. And she said, you know what? My story has always had been a story with a moral. And you know what that story meant for me? It meant that I was soiled, damaged, injured, disfigured. But Les, if what you're saying is true, you're telling me that Jesus wants to rewrite that story. That it doesn't mean that anymore. That it now means that I live in a broken world that He is trying to redeem. And I can live with that verdict in a way in which I can't live with the old. Now look, I'd like to sort of tie that up in a nice neat package and say, and they all lived happily ever after. But I don't know how her story ended. I don't. But I do know how her story is going to get better. I know that that's going to be the way. Go back with me to the grove. And walk up to those hundred people that are standing around that bench. And as you draw forward, cringing as you go, waiting to hear what they're saying, you hear a young man standing up on the stool, and he says this, Jesus, son of Joseph, son of Solomon, son of David and Bathsheba, son of Boaz and Ruth and of Salmon and of Rahab and of Judah and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, Son of Adam. You see, that's the gospel. Is that even my own personal history is replaced by Jesus' heritage. So here's my question for you. Whose history are you living in the light of right now? Is it yours? Is it with all of those sort of competing shame offerings up there? Because you will be connecting in whichever way, in the way you understand your own history. And so the invitation I think this is morning is, is what if Jesus' resume could be your own? My faith. <laughs> Through nothing more than hearing the story and being like, wouldn't that be great? If it's true. Is it true? Because if it is, nothing's the same. <laughs> Let's pray then Lord Jesus, help us believe and be changed. Father, there are too many faces and too many stories in this room for there not to be gashes all over the life of this room. And we are in desperate need of that streak of light which lets us know that You have come, You led the life, You brought the resume that we needed. So would You now this morning open us up to that?
Maybe even draw someone to yourself for the first time. Would you do that? So we ask it all in Jesus' name.